Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. All right. Well, guys, we're going to continue in our study of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 4. Prayers are appreciated. I'm exhausted this morning, okay? I don't usually mention that as a caveat, but I, sometimes you're just aware of how much you're like, Lord, this, this is not functioning right now. Uh, I was very aggressive this week in trying to do a couple of different things that I thought, yeah, this will be no problem. Ashley's been away visiting family. She left, her and the kids left last Tuesday, and they'll be returning this upcoming Tuesday evening, and they're having a great visit. Um, and they're kind of all over the Midwest, as it were. And, uh, and there was a bit of a family reunion uh, that kind of converged in the area of South Bend, Indiana. And so I thought, no problem. I'll fly up there Friday morning, fly back Saturday afternoon. It'll be great. And it was great. Other than when the plane last night got delayed and then delayed and then delayed and delayed. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, when I had plenty of time to study in the airport, but that's only so good, you know, and then you get home late and everything. So anyhow, I don't mean to make excuses, but I'm making excuses. So strength is made perfect in weakness, so we're going to expect good things. Um, let's pray, shall we? Father, this is your word. You exalt it, Lord, above your own name. It's not just a book. It's the word of God. It's living. It's powerful. It's active. Your word says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it pierces. It means by your spirit, Lord, it brings transformation. It does something in us, Lord, and that's what we desire here this morning. We don't want to just talk about things, Lord. We want to have an encounter with you and be transformed by you. And I might be tired this morning, Lord, but it shouldn't be my words. It should be yours. So, Lord, we look to you here this morning. I look to you to move and work in this place, Lord, to teach, Lord, here today, to give us what you would have for us, Lord, what we need corporately, Lord, and individually, Lord. And so we look to you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that we can. What, a, what a, an act of grace, Lord, that you would care enough for us to meet us right where we are, to teach us, Lord, to change us. And so we long for that here this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for our time together here. Bless it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Romans chapter 4. We're making our way through. And if you recall over these last several weeks, what Paul has been doing as we've considered uh, chapters 1 through 3 is he's writing to this church in Rome, both Jew and Gentile, and he's made a clear case for man's depravity. That is, he, he's made a case for man's sinfulness, for our need for a Savior. And in fact, what he really puts forth is that we are all equal in this way. The ground being level at the foot of the cross, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you have achieved. It doesn't matter where you have failed. We have all sinned, Paul writes, and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus. It is the great equalizer in life. And further, in our sinfulness, it is clear that there is nothing that we can do about our situation. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot work to earn salvation. We certainly do not deserve it as evidenced by our sinfulness. So then, salvation is a free gift. A free gift of God's grace. And it's rooted in who He is, not in who we are. And that is a good thing. Anyone who is self-aware enough can recognize, I'm not a good person. We fancy ourselves to, to be such. We often try and convince ourselves that we are. 
but rather he is the one who is good. And that doesn't mean then that we are just forever terrible people. No, it means that anything that's good in us, because there are good things in us, it's him. It's him working in us. And as our lives are transformed and as things in our lives begin to change, we can say, this is because there is a God who loves me, who's working in me, who's changing me. Only he can do it. And he has, he has accomplished salvation for us. And so then we are called to trust in him for it, not in ourselves. And that's so contrary to what the world would tell us. The self-help industry in our world is a booming industry. All the, all the various ways in which the world seeks to tell you, help yourself, fix yourself, do it this way. Here's a plan for this, here's a plan for that. You can do it. And it's truly a lie. We, we, we can't do those things. We can only do those things by God's grace and in His strength. It's Him who does it. Can there be life transformation? Absolutely. Can, can, can a life look one way? Can an individual be totally lost and then their life look fundamentally different and then to be walking on a new path? Yes. But it's God who does it. Paul wants us to understand that. And so we're called to trust in Him for it, not in ourselves. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, we, we considered this last week in a different translation. This is the New Life translation. I saw it, thought it fitting. It says, this is what we have come to know. A man is made right with God by putting his trust in Christ. It is not by his doing what the law says. Right? Very simple. This is what we've come to know. A man is made right with God by putting his trust in in Jesus. This then is the principle of justification by faith. We are justified, that is, we are declared righteous in the sight of God, not by our own efforts or works, but through faith in God. Now Paul, greatly desiring that the church would have a right understanding of these things, he, he then continues on in his style of anticipating questions and challenges, and so he's sort of doing this his own little question and answer, anticipating what might they think, what might the people who are reading his letter, how might they respond, and so he continues in this pattern, and he begins to transition now as we look to chapter 4 to a couple of perfect examples of this very truth in the Old Testament. So not only has he said, listen, this is the way that things are, uh, it, we are justified by faith, not by works. But now he's going to say, here's some examples of people who lived this out. And so he gives us the examples of Abraham, who really serves as the, the father of the faith, uh, that man who God plucked out, a pagan man who God set apart and said, I'm going to do a work through you. Uh, and then he also gives us the example of King David, a man who we know is said to have been a man after God's own heart. Now for us today, as we begin, there is purpose in this, of course both to gain right understanding of sound doctrine. That is, as we read this, there should be for you, Christian, uh, a greater understanding of what it is that we believe and, and why we believe it. But also, there should be for us a proper perspective then of our salvation, of what it is that God has done for us. And, and, and if we rightly understand that, if we can study this uh, and, and, and really begin to grasp it, there should be a sense of wonder that comes with that. Uh, a sense of amazement at what it is that God has done for us. We should, stated differently, leave here today saying, praise God. Praise God for what He's done for me. For how He's changed my life. For how much He loves me. 
And so Paul will continue then to build the case for justification by faith through the examples of Abraham and David. And then really, the latter part of verse 17, he's going to transition then to looking at the characteristics of that faith, specifically in the life of Abraham. So he's going to give us an understanding of justification by faith, and then he's going to switch and to say, now let's look at Abraham's faith, because we also need to understand what does that faith look like? We can say have faith, we can say we, we trust, we can say we believe, but what does that mean? And so we'll look at the life of Abraham as well to gain a better understanding. Beginning here in chapter 4, verse 1, let's read through verse 4. Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So again, using Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, uh, the one who God had chosen to raise up as a people set apart for his name, he perhaps, if you think about Abraham, the life of Abraham, and we've, we've dealt with this recently in our study of Genesis, you might be inclined to think, man, Abraham has some things he could boast about. That's a pretty prominent role. That's a pretty big job. God used this man in, in a pretty mighty way, did he not? I mean, the interactions that Abraham had with God. The, the, the way in which they communed together, the, the, the ways that God would, would speak directly into Abraham's life and, and do miraculous things. It'd be easy, wouldn't it, for Abraham to say, no, I'm, I've, I've done some pretty incredible things. But what Paul is writing here is he's saying he has, he has, no, he has no right to boast. Why does he have no right to boast? Because it's nothing that he did. It was all that which God did. What Abraham did was believed. Now, again, we're going to consider the nature of belief in a moment. But what we understand here, Paul quoting from Genesis, is that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what accomplished that. His belief, his trust, not his works, not anything else that he did. Now, when it says that it was accounted to him for righteousness, accounted is a financial term. It's an accounting term. And, and here it is, as if, if Abraham on his, let's say he had a bank balance sheet of his life, what we need to understand, and this is true of us as well, is that it showed that there was a, a debt. He was overdrawn, as it were, on his account, and it was that way from the very beginning. He was born into debt, one that he could not pay. He was born into this debt. He had no way to pay it, but through his belief in God, the balance was credited. The debt had been paid. Now that is grace, is it not? To How many of you, if you're in a situation in your bank account and you think, there is literally no money in there. In fact, it's telling me that I've, I've overspent. And so not only do I have, I, I, don't, I don't have any money, I can't even bring it up to neutral at this point. That's a difficult position to be in. And all of a sudden you go and you look at your bank account and, and it's taken care of. There's no longer a negative balance. There's not even just a neutral zero balance. You, you have money in the bank. Would you not sit back and go, what in the world has happened? How, 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 did, how did somebody do that? Why did somebody do that? This is grace. This is unmerited favor. It's undeserved. It's a free gift. And so then Paul goes on, though, to make it clear here so that we properly understand it because we have a tendency to kind of keep going back to this thinking of, of, of earning something or deserving something. Paul goes back to try and make it clear, and, and, and he 
gives us this example in verse 4 saying, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. What is he saying here? How many of you, when, uh, and you know, some of you, some of you, God bless you, you're just very gracious and thankful people. And so maybe when you get your paycheck, you paid weekly, or you get paid every other week, or whatever the case may be, and you, you find yourself going, well, well, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. Maybe that's your heart, right? You just find yourself in a sense of gratitude. That's good. I'm not going to try and discourage that. But I don't know that there's many of you out there that when you get your paycheck, you find yourself going, oh, I just didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. I just am overwhelmed by this bi-weekly paycheck. It just keeps coming miraculously. No, that's foolishness, is it not? You find yourself going, yep, I earned that, right? Or maybe some weeks you're going, that's not enough. <laughs> that is not enough this week, right? And you, get, you, you understand. Paul here, it, it hasn't changed since then. He's saying, listen, if you get paid for a job, you know you worked for it. It's not that way with our salvation. Not so with righteousness. In fact, when righteousness is credited to you, when you are saved by faith, when you're justified by faith, that is a moment when you should rightly understand, I didn't earn this. This is that substantial surprise bonus that's been included in your check that you knew nothing about, that there was no discussion of, that you truly didn't need to do anything extra. It's just someone in their kindness who said, I want to bless you. Verse 5, Paul says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, verse 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. This is David here now writing. And what David is stating is a truth for all of us that knowing that we didn't deserve it, knowing that we couldn't earn it, this wasn't something that was given to us because we'd done these other things we are truly a blessed people so here as, as Paul moves on to an example of David he's going to come back to Abraham Paul here is, is quoting from Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 and this is a Psalm of David now why does David say these things why does he say that that those whose lawless deeds are forgiven are blessed well, I, I think we could very simply say, well, because they are. If somebody is, 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 has broken the law, if they've been caught up in a lawless deed and it's been forgiven, well, surely they're a blessed people. But we have to, rather than just quickly going over this, consider for a moment who was saying this and why. As you think about David, and he's writing these psalms, particularly in this portion of Scripture, there in the psalms, all the way up really through Psalm 51, what is David thinking about? He's thinking about his own sin. David's thinking about the things that he's done. In particular, David's thinking about his sin <clears throat> with Bathsheba. This was really the great moral failing for David, and not just the adultery with Bathsheba, but all the circumstances surrounding it. Because for David, what, there is, uh, what he comes to understand is not only was there, as it pertains to God's law, which is right and perfect, an aspect of covetousness that began the whole thing, and lust, but then he engaged in it. Not only did he disregard what ultimately for us would be the, the uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit, so, so he quenches 
no doubt what he was experiencing in terms of knowing this is wrong, shutting it down. We do that in our life when the Holy Spirit is convicting us of something and we say we seek to quiet it, we seek to suppress it, as Paul writes at the beginning of, of Romans. But then he proceeds in the sin, now grieving the Holy Spirit. That's what we do when then we engage in the sin that, that, that conviction was seeking to prevent us from. And so there's covetousness, there's lust, now there's the actual adult, uh, act of adultery. And then what follows from that is murder. As he makes arrangements for her husband to be effectively put to death by going out on the front lines of battle. David, the heaviness of this is now upon him. He was guilty of all of these things. And what Old Testament law really made clear, especially as it pertains to the process of sacrificial uh, uh, of sacrifice, <clears throat> was that there was no guarantee for forgiveness because such premeditated sin would not be atoned for by the sacrificial system. And so David is really in a place where he's saying, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm guilty. I'm lost. He, he, he understands that God says, as recorded in Exodus chapter 23, verse 7, I will not acquit the wicked. I will not acquit the wicked. It's one of the things that helps us to understand that there, he being a righteous judge, there must be someone who pays the price. God's not just going to acquit the wicked for nothing. No, if he's, a, if he's a good judge, someone must pay the penalty. We know that that was Jesus who took that. But here David is thinking, what, what am I going to do? Is there no hope? Well, later on, David, in Psalm 51, specifically in verses 16 and 17, he recognizes, he comes to a place where he, all he can do in this moment is throw himself at the mercy of God as he says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David understands in this moment in his life there is nothing that I can do. There's no sacrifice that I can make. The only thing that I can do is to be broken inside and lay myself at the mercy of God. He understands then as he makes this comment that, that Paul refers back to, he understands we are blessed when our sins are forgiven, when we're covered Friends, we must understand that this morning. This must be something that we should be aware of each and every day. We don't wallow in the sins of our past, but rather every day we should be joyful. We should recognize, God, you have forgiven me much. And so then that should affect how we live that day. I often say perspective is everything. Listen, some of us are going to face some difficult circumstances this week. Perhaps each and every one of us. And some of, the we some of your weeks may be, may be a really good week. Some maybe, maybe you're coming off of the heels of just, man, it's been a tough week. Been dealing with some tough stuff. And I don't want to minimize any of that. But when we have right perspective, no matter what is going on in our lives, we can always find confidence and hope and joy in what has been accomplished for us. And that's much of what Paul is seeking to accomplish here in this chapter. We're blessed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Is that you today? Have you in faith received what it is that he's done for you? Now Paul anticipates as he gives these two examples that perhaps then the prevailing thought is going to be, based off of the two examples, being both Abraham and David, that since they were Jews, that, that maybe then the Jewish people amongst this congregation here are going to think, see, well, you do need to become a Jew first before you can experience what it is that he's talking about here. And so in anticipating this question, Paul begins to address it in verses 9 through 12. He says, does this blessedness, this, this blessing, this, this thing that David has said, blessed are you when, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? 
For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now then, was it accounted? Or excuse me, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. It can be a little easy to get lost in the argument there. He says circumcision a lot, right? And you're, you're like, where is he going with this? What Paul states is, in fact, really quite simple. In Scripture, when was Abraham circumcised? If you went back and you looked through the story of Abraham in Genesis, you would know that he was circumcised in Genesis 17. When did he believe in God's promise where it was accounted to him as righteousness? Genesis 15. Now, I'm a little tired this morning but I still with confidence believe and trust that 15 comes before 17, does it not? Amen. Praise the Lord, we're doing okay. This is essentially what Paul is saying. Which happened first? It was accounted to him for righteousness first. The outward sign of circumcision, that which was an outward sign, no different in many respects than baptism is for us today, an outward sign of an inward faith came after. That's all the proof that we need. He did this, God did this before the work. Before the outward work, before the outward sign. Friends, isn't it amazing how often as we implement different spiritual disciplines in our life or, or as circumcision, which is this outward sign as I've mentioned, like baptism for us, also an outward sign, that, that we think once we've done these things or once we start to do all of these different things, that maybe, to, maybe we're just a little bit more saved now. Be honest with yourself. You may not say that, but I'm willing to bet that at some point in your life, that's what you meant well, golly, I'm doing this really good now. Ah, man, you should see my daily devotional time. God, i got to be more saved today. And again, you know, I've never said that, but we think it. We convince ourselves that's what we ultimately are doing when we think that the various things that we are doing are earning us more favor with God. Now listen, please understand, am I suggesting, so don't even bother with your daily devotions. No, not at all, Okay. Those are important. It is important for us to draw near to God. It is important for us to develop spiritual disciplines so that we are exercising ourselves toward godliness. That is a mandate in Scripture, but that's a process of sanctification where God's working in our lives, making us new, changing us. And so, yes, we are. Today I stand before you not as the man that I am created to be, but I also stand before you today not as the man that I once was. There is a process of change that's happening in my life and there should be in each of you as well. However, as it pertains to my righteousness, my right standing before God, that was accomplished on day one. Done. And to suggest anything otherwise, to suggest that my works on an ongoing basis, this process of sanctification, are somehow making me more right, is to diminish the work of Christ upon the cross. Do you understand that? That's what Paul wants us to understand. And it is, if we're really honest, if we really reflect on it, we are prone to this type of thinking. Why? Because it's the way in which the world deals with us. 
Everywhere else in your life, you have to earn things. Everywhere else in life, you have to prove yourself. Everywhere else in life, you have to do something to achieve something. It's ingrained in us, and that's why we should, when we come to Christ, be absolutely blown away and to truly understand, this is grace. Nowhere else in the world are you going to experience grace like He gives. That's why we sometimes wrestle with all this stuff because it is so different. Praise God for that. You don't have to earn it. You can't. There's this constant pursuit of status, of achievement. And some of those things may be well and good in various pursuits. I'm not saying it's wrong to do your best at work. I'm not saying if you've gotten a promotion or maybe you did well in sports and you got to start in position, shame on you. No, praise God. Do it for his glory, though. But these things, it fuels a wrong sense in us of our relationship with God, thinking somehow we can become saintlier. And, 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 and speaking of saints, do you know that in various denominations, there's this process of sainthood, and it's rooted in, do you know what it's rooted in? Your works, your achievements, and then a committee to evaluate the life of an individual. Are they worthy of a saint? Are they not? You know what the Bible says about becoming a saint? You know what the Bible says about becoming a saint? Not a denomination. What the Bible says about it? Believe in Jesus. And so Christian, you're a saint. Isn't that amazing? Now don't you go making a little statue of yourself and putting it on your dashboard. (laughs) And that's idolatry. (laughs) Okay? You're a saint. You're already there. That's amazing. You are a saint, Christian. Thank you. It's amazing. And Richard, you don't deserve it. (laughs) Susan said amen. (laughs) That's good. A help meet. Helps in many different ways, right? Listen, this is incredible. So again, are the spiritual disciplines good? Yes. Is serving good? Is saying, hey, because of what God has done for me, I want to serve in children's ministry. See what I did there? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Yes, that's good. But they earn you no more righteousness with God. That has been accounted to you. Your balance sheet, Christian, says paid. It's done. Verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul, again, I mean, he's just hitting on this over and over again. You can't help but reference Galatians chapter 3, verse 17 specifically, but really all of Galatians 3, Paul just kind of repeats all of this again for the church in Galatia who is so quickly going back to the law. And Paul's absolutely astounded as he's got to deal with this again. But this is the tendency. So often it is our tendency to go back to works because it's all around us. Again, we're inundated constantly with the fact that we need to earn it. We need to work for it. And so Paul has to deal with this many times throughout Scripture, and specifically in Galatians 3.17, he says, In this I say that the law, listen, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Paul's saying the law that you want to say, Abraham, that made Abraham righteous, it didn't even come for 430 years later. No, he was righteous because he believed. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, 
so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul here, he goes on to say, reiterating again, look, if it was about the law, then we'd be, we'd be ruined. The law is intended to be a schoolmaster, a teacher, to help us see we can't do it, we can't measure up. He deals with that in Galatians as well. Rather, he says, no, the law is there and it's good. He dealt with that at the end of chapter 3. It's good at pointing us to Jesus, the one who we need. And now he begins to say, and listen, it's not just about Abraham. It's about all of us. Do you remember the Sunday school song, people? Father Abraham, what did he have? Many sons. Had many sons. Had Father Abraham. And then what next? I am one of them. And so are you. Now what? Let's just praise the Lord. What a great song. Now we do it with some motions too, right? You have to, there was like a hokey pokey thing going on there, like an arm and a leg and, you know, different things. Maybe that was just, it was just just in my weird Michigan church. I don't know. But uh, Father Abraham, we, we are one of them and so are you. And this is what Paul's saying here. It's biblical. It's a sound song. It's saying, listen, we're all part of this now. How? By believing. The same way that he was made righteous, we're made righteous. And so what Paul starts to do then here is to make some transition, having clearly established that our righteousness, our justification, comes not from our own efforts, not from our own works, not from our own achievements, but that of our faith. He now shifts then to providing an understanding of that faith, which is good for us to understand. Why? Because when Scripture states that he believed and it was accounted to him as righteous, we must ask, what does believe mean? Do you believe? What is it that you believe? How often, especially here, and I don't mean to point it out, but it's just the way that it is, and I've learned this over the last however many years since I've been here in the Southeast, the proverbial Bible Belt, is there's a whole lot more people that I meet than what I did in Michigan who say, oh, I believe in God. And I know it's not just specific here, but it just certainly happens to get a bit more. What does it mean that you believe in God? You know, doesn't James write in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Let me translate that for you. I don't care if you say you believe. That doesn't mean much unless your life is changed. Unless you trust. Listen, we are very prone to something that, that I and certainly others that would not be original to me, we're very prone to something called cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer deals with this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Even the title alone tells us something, doesn't it? The cost of discipleship inherent in that means that to be a disciple, to follow after Jesus, means that it's going to cost me something. It's this idea that we so freely assign salvation to ourselves and others through a simple statement, oh, I believe in God. Or even somebody who says, oh, I believe in Jesus. And listen, this idea tends to make people uncomfortable because we want to say and we want to believe that it is truly that easy, right? And and it is, it is easy to come to Jesus. And and my goodness, I've I've just spent weeks now teaching through the first part of Romans, which makes clear there's nothing I can do. So so suddenly are we saying there's got to be something else that I've got to do something to, to prove that I believe? No. But we can't just flippantly Say, oh, well, I believe in God and expect then that everything's just okay. There must be a change. There must be transformation. Listen, what does it mean to believe in someone? 
It means you trust Him, does it not? If you were to say to somebody, and this is on the horizontal, okay, this is on the horizontal relationship plane here, and, and you, you want to encourage somebody, and you would say, I believe in you. What are you, what are you saying? I know that you can do it. I, I, I trust you. I, I know that you're going to do this for me. I'm going I'm I'm to give this to you, and I'm, I know that it's going to get done. And unfortunately, in those human relationships, we sometimes do that with a little bit of like, I'm putting some confidence, but I know it might not. It's going to be okay. You know, I mean, I'm giving them maybe a little bit right now so that if they do drop the ball, it's not too big of a deal. Or maybe you have some people in your life that, that my goodness, I, and I can tell you, I mean, praise the Lord, there are people in my life, I, would say, I trust my life with this person. And certainly my, my spouse, you know, years upon years of growing in that relationship. But my goodness, as much as my wife may look at me and say, I trust this man and I believe in this man, if she is honest, she knows there's still going to be times when I'm going to let her down. And so, I mean, just think about this idea of belief and trust. Now, if we're really believing in God, if somebody says, I believe in God, well, are you truly giving him your trust? Are you giving him your life? You know, Bonhoeffer, he writes, of forgiveness, but forgiveness without repentance, so pervasive in our culture today. He writes of communion, but communion without confession. What of those who, who say they believe, but in practice their life demonstrates anything but that? You see, that's cheap grace. When, when people so, so flippantly and so quickly engage in all these different things, but, but is there truly a heart of repentance? Is there truly confession? Is there uh, truly a, a heart that takes these things seriously? Or, or that you say you believe in God, but would you let anybody into your life to see into the secret places of your life? Please understand, I'm not suggesting there needs to be perfection. We are all on a path of sanctification. But I'm grieved by how often I hear a, yes, I believe, and then a life that's lived entirely for the world. And listen, guys, when I say that, and you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again, I'm grieved because I also know that that was me for so many years. Who thought I had everything right, who told everybody I w there wouldn't be a person who I, told, who I wouldn't tell I believe in God who I wouldn't tell I believe in Jesus, who I wouldn't uh, espouse certain uh, aspects of, of, of the Christian life. But the fact of the matter is, I knew that, that that belief had not translated to a desire for obedience, hadn't translated to a, a, a thirst for his word. What of those who say I have faith, but the apparent object of their faith is anything but Jesus? This is why Paul brings us to Abraham's example we're going to go through this fairly quickly and we'll revisit it again next week. Verse 17, he says, As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Here's what I want us to see here. And again, we're going to move fairly quickly. The first characteristic here that he shows us of Abraham's faith is that his faith was in God foundationally here he says the object of his faith was nothing other than God himself in the presence of him whom he believed. God, this is whose Abraham's faith was in. What is our faith in? Our faith can very quickly be put in a lot of different things. His faith was in God. Our faith must be in God. And it's a God who gives life to the dead, who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He can create something from nothing. And he's the only one that can do that. That's who our faith is to be in. The one true creator God of the universe. Nothing else. He goes on to say, verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. 
so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. You see, the second thing we see here is that his faith hoped against hope. His faith was a hopeful faith. It means that against all odds, he said, I believe. In Abraham's case, he's saying, father of many nations? Are you kidding me? Abram, before he became Abraham, Abram was, his name meant exalted father. He had no kids. That's humiliating. Right, what a name. And then, and then, all this time goes by, and God's told him, you're going to have kids, you're going to have kids, and he's got to be thinking along the way, like, man, I don't, uh, this is not really happening yet, but I'm trying, I'm trying to believe. And God comes to him, and he comes to reassure him again, he says, I'm going to give you a new name. Abraham probably thinks at that moment, he's probably thinking, praise the Lord. Give me something. Give me a different name. He says, you're going to be Abraham. Oh, great. He went from exalted father to father of many nations. He's like, what are you just rubbing it in? But in this moment, he had a choice. He says, am am I going to trust? Am I going to believe? Am I going to hope against hope? Meaning that, am I going to pay attention to my earthly circumstances? The fact that I'm way too old and Sarah's way too old and this just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't add up. Or am I going to trust in a God who is above all things? He chose wisely. His faith hoped. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. And so we see also that his faith was not weak. It did not waver. He didn't doubt. Now, yes, Abraham wasn't perfect along the way. And this was part of what God was doing in his life, bringing him to a place where he could trust, where he could have confidence. And he does the same thing in us. He grows our faith. He strengthens our faith. But for us to have faith, for us to say we believe, it's got to be focused on God. It's got to be characterized by hope. It must not be weak. It must not waver. Further, it was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So we see here also that his faith glorified God. Do you see what I'm saying here when people say, I believe in God? Do you see this in the rest of their life? If you say, I believe in God, are they able to articulate, my faith is in him, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. My faith is in one who I know can do things that may seem impossible to the rest of the world. My faith is not weak, though at times it wavers. I bring myself back to God and I say, Father, strengthen me. And when he moves and when he works, I give God the glory. You see, these are the principles, these are the outpourings of faith. When we say we believe in God, these should be things that we can see in someone's life. His faith glorified God, verse 21, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And so his faith trusted. He said what God said he's going to do. I trust him he's going to do it. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Because of this trust, because of this belief, because of this faith, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And his faith was rooted in God. So lest we suddenly then think, well, see, Abraham did do something. What did he do? Yeah, he had a powerful faith, but what was it? It was just a trust in God that God would do the things that he said he was going to do. And furthermore, Scripture tells us that he gives us the gift of faith. He does this work. It was all about what God could and would do and his trust in him, which changed how he lived and what others saw in this man's life. So what then of us? Verse 23 through 25, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. Friends, this is belief. 
What we must understand is that Paul has made it clear, listen, your righteousness is not dependent upon you and your works and what you can earn, what you can work for. It's accomplished through faith. But here's what your faith should look like. It must be a real faith, a real trust. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This cannot be an I go to church every now and then and I was raised in a Christian home and so I believe there's, I believe there's a God kind of faith. No, this must be the kind of trust that says, I believe who he is. I believe that he died for me. My belief would prompt me then to live my life for him. I believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. I believe in him so much that I want to glorify him. When he does do it, I want to give him the glory. I know that it's not about me, it's about him. And listen, I'm, please, some of you may be sitting here saying, you know, my faith is weak at times. Well, if you recognize that, tell him. Go to the one who you believe can do all things. Who, who, go to him like that, that, that woman who demonstrated such, great, such faith did and say, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. James chapter 1, verses 2-8, through eight, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So yes, your faith is going to be tested at times. But God will use that to produce something in you. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you're one who has said, hey, I believe in God, but the fact of the matter is, every time you go to put something in your hand, his hands, you take it right back because you struggle to trust. Because, you know, I'm just going to do it myself. Have you really trusted in him? Have you really surrendered to him? No, we must be willing to come to him and to say, God, it's yours. I trust you with my life. If that's you today and you've yet to surrender your life to Christ, make today that day. Say, you know what? I've not truly believed. I've not truly trusted. That was me. It was all words. It was all, it was all outward signs. It was all about what I did, the, 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 the things that I did, the, the works that I accomplished. And he brought me to that place of saying, you don't really trust me. You haven't really given me your life. If you believe today, if, if you're here today and you say, no, I know that he's Lord of my life. I've tr I trust him. I struggle at times, but I go to him. And Well, then how should this apply? What do we see from this? Well, we should understand here as I close, based off of what Paul has shared with us, that first and foremost, there's nothing to boast about other than him. We have nothing that we can boast in other than Jesus Christ and His work upon the cross. And because of that, knowing what it is that He's done for us, not that we should deserve it, not that we do deserve it, nor can we earn it, but knowing that He did it as a free gift of His grace, know also then that we're blessed. Leave here today saying, I'm a blessed person. Having right perspective that no matter what's going on in our lives, we don't have to, I don't minimize any challenges that we may be facing, but the fact of the matter is, you can always, as a believer, always, always, always say, I'm blessed. When someone asks you, how are you doing today? Be honest. Stop pretending, okay? I don't like that either. If you're, deal if you're dealing with something tough and somebody says, how are you? Say, you know, I'm really dealing with something hard right now. But I know that God's good. And I know that I'm blessed because of what he's done in my life. But I could really use some prayer here. Nothing to boast about other than Christ alone. Know that you're blessed. And then since a, since a God who is able did all of this for you, 
and calls you to just trust in Him, to have faith in Him, then that faith should cause you to be hopeful, to have a strong faith, to glorify God in your faith, to live convinced of His promises, and to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what he wants out of all of all this. As Paul just continues to hit this and hit this and hit this, it's because he says, I want the church to look like this. To be a people who are hopeful. To be a people who have a strong faith. To be a people who glorify God. To be a people who say, God said he was going to do it, and so I trust him to do it. And my eyes are on Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together here this morning, Lord. We give you praise. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to move and work in our hearts, Lord, strengthening us drawn us near to you, Lord, and uh, just, just working this out, Lord, in our lives such that our faith would be on display for others and be for your glory, Lord. May we always, Lord, be mindful of what it is that you've done for us, Lord, the free gift of salvation, of how much has been forgiven. May that change our perspective, Lord, may that cause us to live our lives differently each and every day. Father, we love you and praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.